Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Jennifer Roberts and the 2021 Mellon Lectures. Before we get there, it would be wonderful if you would give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download the program. It helps new listeners find the show and, you know, makes us feel good. Thanks very much. Beginning this weekend, Roberts will deliver the 2021 Mellon Lectures, America's leading series of annual lectures about art. Typically delivered at the National Gallery of Art each year, over six consecutive Sundays in the early spring, the pandemic has required an adjustment. Ergo, Roberts will deliver this year's Mellons digitally. As ever, the lectures will be presented on six consecutive Sundays, and it all starts this weekend on April 25th. The lectures will be on the National Gallery's website, where they will remain available for viewing whenever you'd like. No registration is required. We'll have a link to the lectures on manpodcast.com. Lots of other great stuff on manpodcast.com this week, including images, links, and the Instagrams of both of my guests, and they are both Instagram all-stars. Robert's lectures are titled Contact, Art and the Pull of the Print. She will consider printmaking as a physical experience and will point to how artists have used the physicality inherent in printmaking as metaphors for the themes and topics they address in their work. Robert's lectures will primarily focus on American and European contemporary art and will address work by artists such as Jasper Johns, Robert Rauschenberg, David Hammonds, Christiane Baumgartner, and Glenn Ligon. Roberts is a professor at Harvard University. On the second segment, Phil Sanders. But first, Jennifer Roberts, after the break. Shireen Nishat, I Will Greet the Sun Again, organized by The Broad, Los Angeles, will be on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth February 19th through May 16th. The exhibition surveys approximately 30 years of the artist's video works and photography, investigating her passionate engagement with ancient and recent Iranian history, the experience of living in exile, and the human impact of political revolution. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature, showcasing the work of David Hockney and Vincent Van Gogh side-by-side for the first time in an American museum and only in Houston. Discover the expansive landscape paintings and vivid drawings of two renowned artists. For details on virtual lectures, curated shopping, and tickets, go to mfah.org slash Hockney Van Gogh. If you've been waiting patiently to get back to the Getty Villa Museum or experience it for the first time, great news. The villa has reopened. Explore Blooming Gardens, Antiquities Galleries, Roman-inspired architecture, and a major new exhibition, Mesopotamia Civilization Begins, which features stunning works from the Met, the Louvre, and the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Free advance reservations are available now at getty.edu. And we're back. Jennifer Roberts, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It is thrilling to be here. Thanks for having me. I am a longtime Mellon Lectures stan. I've been going to them for years and years. And this year, nobody's going to them. You're doing them in a unique, special, totally different way. Let's start by maybe you're explaining to people how you've put these together and how we will experience them starting on Sunday. Yes, of course. It has been a very interesting process, very challenging I've picked up a lot of new skill sets along the way, so I'm thankful, thankful to the pandemic for that. Yeah, so I, of course, when I originally planned out my melon experience, I imagined that I'd be living in D.C. for a few months and 
working in the library at CASVA and sort of meandering down to the auditorium every Sunday evening and delivering a lecture live. And I was dreaming of the cherry blossoms <laughs> and other spring-like activities. And that's what I kind of had planned out and budgeted for myself. But of course, everything has changed since then. So I was given the option of actually postponing them for another year until the pandemic was over. But I decided I would like to go ahead and, and try to do them remotely, largely because I, I really want to get moving on some other projects now. And I really want to get this material put together and presented. So I decided to go ahead and try it. And I have to say, working with the people at the National Gallery in CASVA has just been a dream. They've been so helpful and so flexible and so open to rethinking the way they present these lectures as well. So we're all learning how to do this as we go. So the way this will work is, as you know, every Sunday for the next six weeks, the lectures will be posted on the site and then they'll remain up there indefinitely. So right off the bat, there's this fundamental question of what kind of object is a Mellon lecture now? Because in the past, when you go and look at a video of a previous Mellon lecture, you're looking at just a document of something that was fundamentally a live lecture. So you're looking at a, a kind of record or a document of something that was planned live. What we're doing is something between that and a more official kind of TV documentary kind of a presentation. So these are lectures which are pretty heavily edited and very carefully put together. I have changed my own procedures for writing and presenting everything from how many images I think I need to put in a lecture to the sort of pace of my delivery. All these are, are new for me. And I guess one reason for that is, as I learned when I was teaching last spring remotely, uh, I would tape a lecture and go back and watch it later. And I just felt like everything was so tediously slow compared to the way it felt delivering it live. And I think when you're delivering something live, you can be much more dynamic and connect to people and, and keep people's interest at a different pace. But on video, I feel like you've got to keep the images moving a little faster. And because especially students today, they're just used to consuming video at a much higher pace. So you'll be looking at a video that's made by you know, cutting between my face talking and then what would have been the slides on the wall. Some video interspersed, a little bit of Ken Burns activity. So it is not quite a real documentary finished product, highly polished piece of video art, but it is something in between that and a lecture. So that's been very interesting to do. So when I finish a lecture, I deliver them a, a recording of you know my face speaking the script and I send them the script and call-outs in the script that go with slides that I also send them in a separate document, and then a huge series of JPEGs and all of the backup information for each image. So it actually takes about twice as long as it would just to go down and start talking in the auditorium. I will be expecting you to have the Ken Burns haircut. <laughs> no, but I have COVID hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's turn to the lectures themselves, the content of, of the lectures. At the heart of your construction of your melons is the physicality of printmaking, pressure, pulling, physical 
actual handsy making. What first drew you to the relationship between body and labor and making? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think these lectures are essentially an intersection of two big streams of my work over the past 10 years. One of them is an interest in printmaking per se, but the other one is an interest in making as a mode of, of knowledge and intelligence, a mode of art historical thinking as well. So yes, so for, for many years over the past, yeah, I think it's been 10 years, I have been part of a small group of scholars, namely Ethan Lasser and Glenn Adamson, who was heading up a project called the Minding Making Project. And this is a project that involved annual workshops, but also a co-taught course with my colleague Ethan Lasser, who was formerly the curator of American art at the Harvard Art Museums, but now is at the at the MFA Boston. We co-taught a course and we were working for many years on building up a way of injecting artisanal and craft and makerly and as you say handsy knowledge into academic art history. So, you know, what kind of knowledge is embedded in the practice of making? What do you know as an artist or in this case as a printmaker? In, in what way does the actual manipulation of materials contending with like, fundamental forces in the studio being changed by materials and changing them in turn, how can we bring that kind of knowledge into an kind of intersection with art historical knowledge, which traditionally has been much more interested in theoretical ways of thinking, historical ways of thinking. I like to think about it as art historians are interested in thinking about just about everything except the actual process of making the work, which has always felt wrong to me. So we spent a lot of time developing these languages around making, you know, who's making is worth talking about. How do we think pedagogically about art history as a practice that might develop out of a greater understanding of the intelligence of making? So why, for example, don't art historians have to take studio classes. I mean, sometimes they do, but I never did. And these two projects have really intersected for me around print because, you know, I feel that I, you know, I got a PhD in art history and I went on in this field without anyone ever asking me to take a studio course. And then I also got all the way through decades of art history, including my PhD, without anyone ever telling me anything about printmaking or print. You know, I got a PhD in art history from Yale without being able to tell the difference between a lithograph and a woodcut. And I think that these two streams, as it were, are related because printmaking, I think, has a reputation in the broader field of art history as being highly technical. It's, it's always tied to tied to these technical procedures, which seem in many ways quite opaque or persnickety. And they haven't really been able to rise up to the level of the theoretical discussion where art historians are are comfortable. So, and I also was doing a lot of teaching in the introductory humanities, trying to teach visual humanities courses to STEM students and finding myself constantly having to find ways of explaining to, a, you know, a freshman who is going to go into 
say, bioengineering, how do I explain to her why she should think like a humanist? What are the connections between technical knowledge and humanistic knowledge? So I've been thinking about these questions quite a bit. And I've also spent quite a bit of time in print studios, making prints, talking to master printers. These lectures are really focused on the making part of printmaking and what we can learn from those. I should say that, you know, part of that, part of my insistence on focusing on sort of the physics of print, we might say, is that I have also chosen not to focus on replication or reproduction in these lectures. And I think that's, there are many reasons for that, but it is connected as well to this question of physicality, because when you imagine print to be all about reproduction and dissemination, which is the way it has been imagined in art history and the other humanities fields. By artists themselves too, right? I mean, it was a way of disseminating an idea. Right, exactly. The circulating lifeblood of ideas, as Leo Steinberg put it, you know, in the great moments in the theory of print, like Bill Ivins's book, where print is understood to be you know, fundamentally about exactly repeatable pictorial statements, etc. You know, this is all true and it's all great and I'm really interested in reproduction and replication. But it does assume that the life of print exists after the print leaves the press in the downstream life of print as it goes out into the world and either does or doesn't create communities or does or doesn't create a kind of democratizing environment. This is all very interesting to me, but the focus on reproduction, I think, has been somewhat monolithic, and it's meant that we haven't developed ways of thinking about you know, what actually happens in a print studio. How do you make a print? What kinds of knowledge and defamiliarizations are part of that process. You know, one of the things too that the idea of print as dissemination does is that it, I think, demystifies print a little bit too much. It makes it seem normal. It makes it seem as if it were just a neutral carrier of, of information. But print is actually a very strange thing. And any printmaker will tell you that it requires thinking about things from other kinds of perspectives and it requires you to turn your body inside out, for example, around things like reversal. So part of my desire to talk about print at the level of these physical operations is to you know, open print up to other kinds of narratives than the, than the replication narrative. I'm glad you raised that because I was going to ask about it if you didn't. I mean, it, it, it strikes me as a lot of the work the dissemination of prints used to do is now done by by the web and by JPEGs. And so by centering making and its relationship to ideas and ideologies, you're giving us reasons to care about objects in ways that in modes that that can't be can't transfer digitally, if you will. You've structured your six Mellon lectures around six actions. Each of those actions, each of the words that describes those actions, is also a synonym for an idea, and often, maybe, maybe almost always, a metaphor for that idea. Those six action ideas, if you will, are pressure, reversal, separation, strain, interference, 
and the most 2020-21 of them all, Alienation. <laughs> so let's jump into each of those a bit. And let's start with the first one, the lecture you'll be giving this, giving air quotes, this Sunday, pressure. In printmaking, pressure is fundamental to the engraving of a plate or the cutting of wood. And then, of course, also to the transferring of ink or whatever else to, to the print itself. Were you primarily interested in pressure as fundamental to the physical construction of a print or as a metaphor into the ideologies behind works you, were dis you, you will be discussing? Well, it's actually both. In, and I'll, I'll, I'll say a little bit about where these words come from and, and why I have chosen them. I mean, I think my main, my main goal in these lectures is to open up new ways of approaching and understanding and sort of activating print and printmaking. And for me, that means creating new paths of access in and out of the print world. I like to think of these terms as bridges, I guess, between the technical and the metaphorical, you know, between the physical and the ideational. You know, these are trying to build links between, you know, not just matter and ideas, but also at the same time then between different kinds of communities of interpreters who I think are not talking to each other very much. So for example, makers and interpreters, printmakers and art historians, print people and the rest of the art history and art world. You know, it's hard to, I'm, I, I think it's really hard to break print knowledge out of the print world. It feels very isolated to me. There's so much fantastic writing on print techniques. There's so many people who spend their whole lives working in print. And I find it such an amazing and fascinating world, so rich intellectually with so much potential for art history. But your average art historian who works on, say, minimalism or you know contemporary art doesn't go to that world, doesn't think of that world as a resource. So that's one of the main things I want to do here is sort of attach new receptors to, to printmaking so that it can be recognized by the rest of the art historical world. So these words like pressure and reversal are attempts to kind of uh, find a sweet spot where I'm talking about something that's specific or common to all printmaking processes, but also links up to other media and links up to ideas. So pressure, for example, and that whole lecture is about how can we think about the living connections between the basic fact that if you want to make a print, you have to put two surfaces together and crush the hell out of them and then pull them apart. This fundamental act of pressure. How can we think about that in relationship to questions like oppression? For example, I spend a lot of time in that lecture talking about an amazing set of prints by the artist Willie Cole, which were made by flattening and printing ironing boards. And these are about questions of enslavement and domestic labor, particularly around the generation of black women that were, were his family. And thinking about those prints, those works, in relationship to their physical making, makes it possible to see how the making of them creates the possibility of 
new understandings of racism and enslavement and domestic labor. In that lecture, I'm also talking quite a bit about David Hammonds and his body prints. Pressure is, you know, something that we don't really talk about with with painting. I mean, you can't really talk about painting as an act of pressure in the same way. The print is this repository of possibilities for thinking about contact, pressure, social life along these terms in new and interesting ways, in my view. Like prints, prints can inhabit the entire social continuum of, of touch and contact from intimacy to violence. Some forms of printing are actually very gentle. There are things called kiss impressions. And then there's also the, the deep crush of the etching press. And artists who have worked in these environments and worked with print are in a position to be able to use those vocabularies in very direct ways outside of the printing studio. Your second lecture will be constructed around the idea of reversal. So, of course, a print is a reversing of the image on the plate on which the artist and the printer worked, a reflection of what the artist made rather than faithful representation of the artist's original labor. Are you offering printmaking as a kind of visual or, or artistic manifestation of the Socratic method? <laughs> Interesting. Not in a directly conscious way, but now that you say that, mm, I like that idea. First of all, I, I find it I find it remarkable that there isn't more discussion of the process of reversal in printmaking. I, I've got to interrupt just to say that as soon as I saw that reversal was one of your six, I had the exact same thought. <laughs> that the relationship between reversal and reflection and that part of how images that become prints are made. I mean, I, that, that just flooded forward. <laughs> Yes, yes. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that you miss if you're just looking at print as a dissemination technique, and you're just looking at the downstream life of print, you don't, you don't think about its sort of origins in these very strange, defamiliarizing, I would say even alienating moments of reversal. And I'm interested in the way artists and pe everyone who works on a print, you know, at some point there is some kind of reversal involved. Frequently when artists go into a print studio to work on a project, you know, they are themselves working on the matrix. They're, they're developing some kind of an image that they want to produce on the matrix. And they, in, in many cases, and I'm, I'm, I'm hemming and hawing because there are processes, there are ways to avoid having to reverse things yourself. But, but the artists who really want to go into a print studio and be shaken out of their habits will be the ones who want to work on the matrix in reverse. And just imagine you know, trying to sign your name with your non-dominant hand. The feeling of, of going in and having to produce something in reverse is so strange and it really does turn your whole body inside out you have to think backwards in order to make a print the entire history of printing is based on the reversal of information you know like every printed newspaper prior to the digital age was made by someone sitting there on a printing form and putting all the letters on backwards so that they would read forwards in the finished product so 
reversal in habits printmaking at a very, very deep level. It also means it requires a, a kind of form of intelligence or a way of thinking that, to bring up the Socratic method, I suppose, forces makers to be able to think about things from a, the other side, from the other perspective. If you want to make a print, you have to first make it in reverse. You have to first make it in its kind of negative form. Sometimes this is a left-right reversal, but also there are some processes where, you know, for example, in relief printing, you carve away at a woodblock. All of your labor is going towards making the white part of the print, the, the non-marking part of the print. So all of your labor goes into the blanks rather than the lines. So there are all kinds of ways in which printmaking forces its practitioners to get outside of their own bodies, outside of their own perspectives. And for me, I think this is a really important resource for artists who want to think about confronting otherness, confronting opposition. This lecture is about several artists who used a reversal, who tried to bring the process of reversal that they encountered in print and sort of leave it there in the final work so that viewers who see the final work would also also experience that experience of reversal. So someone like Edgar Heap of Bird's Native Host series is a good example of this, where he's constructed the entire settler colonialism, indigenous confrontation or encounter around the practice of reversing text and putting people on the other on, on opposite sides of a plane, making settlers and indigenous groups confront each other across a reversal. I feel in some ways that this is, I mean, I could easily have done an entire melon series just on reversal, <laughs> but it's fascinating too, just in the technical literature about how challenging reversal has been over the centuries. It's, it's, it's one of these problems that's everywhere in the technical literature, but somehow doesn't bubble up to art history or theory in ways that I think it might. You mentioned one way in which reversal worked around text. Is there a non-text example that might also illustrate your approach? Yeah, the lecture I, I end up focusing mostly around text, but my favorite non-text example is one that I have been thinking about, about a lot lately. This is from an earlier period. This is Rembrandt's famous etching called The Raising of Lazarus. You know, Rembrandt is a figure who was castigated for having Christ performing miracles with the wrong hand. So Christ is raising Lazarus with, with his left hand in this print. But and that's, you know, theologically irritating and theologically embarrassing because one is not supposed to be performing these kinds of activities with the left hand. But of course, on the matrix, on the copper plate, Rembrandt actually did draw it correctly. And so there's a whole set of questions about the ways in which the print kind of leads us back to or sends us back to the copper plate, makes us think about its own reversal and makes it clear that it, it sort of makes you aware of the fact that that images are constantly tumbling through, somersaulting through reversals. I mean, in a lot of, say, Robert Rauschenberg's prints, for example, if you look at a print by Rauschenberg, there will often be material that's that's facing the right way. And then a lot of other material on the same print that's backwards. And, you know, he was really interested in the way media and images, you know, as images move through mediums, as they 
translate themselves from one surface to the next through the process of printing, they're constantly, you know, as I say, tumbling from backwards to forwards. So there's this perpetual oscillation in images as they move through different print processes that, again, is normally erased from our awareness when we're looking you know, only at the final product. But it's so profoundly part of the awareness of the printmaker and of the artists. And I should just say that there are a lot of so-called old master prints in my lectures. You know, I'm, I do talk about Rembrandt and Durer and my favorite Melon, but I'm especially interested in this post-1960 moment because this is a, a time when, after the print renaissance in the U.S. in particular, around 1960, where artists are, A, they're, they're learning in commercial artistic environments. So many of them are commercial artists, people like Warhol, for example, or Liechtenstein. All day, they're working to translate images into the language of print. So every day they have to think about how images relate to print technologies and how, you know, how does one transform a drawing into a printable object. So there's all of this energy coming into the art world from the commercial print world. And that intersects with the rise of the print renaissance in 1960. And you've got all these print studios opening up to teach more traditional print techniques like lithography or engraving. So you have Crown Point Press, you have ULAE, Tamarind opening up, and artists start getting residencies and start working in these environments as well, spending enormous amounts of time learning how to make prints, how to think like printers. I would even say learning how to think like presses. And so you have a situation where right around this period, you've got this huge influx of printing knowledge coming into the so-called fine arts. And you end up with things like Jasper John starts working heavily in print. You know, he already was a print type since he was using stencils so extensively. You have Warhol starting to screen print images onto paintings. You have you know, these, these huge moments that we all understand as being essential to the history of post-war American art. Rauschenberg, of course, with his transfer drawings and his own screen prints. All of these transformative moments in the post-war world are about taking print techniques and translating them into painting. It's not photography that's coming into painting, in my view, it's print. So, you know, that's why I think it's, it's valid to be able to talk about all of these print studio activities getting into the fine arts. And on into the present with Laura Owens and Julie Maritou and Christopher Wool and I and I could keep going. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, that was a bit of a diversion, but I do, you know, it's not. I think it's not just a kind of cognitive leap that I'm making between technique and idea, because these are artists who have trained in printmaking and know how to think like printers and they understand the challenges of this kind of work and it does get into their paintings. And I, th you know, I think a lot of what we see as painting and photography in post-war art is actually print, but people aren't identifying it as such. So Warhol's paintings are really just prints. I mean, they really are just screen prints. Separation. In printmaking, a sheet is physically separated from a plate but there is also separation between the many color layers that may make up a single color print. How does considering separation in the context of printmaking 
allow for an address, either by you, a scholar, or the artist, the worker, allow for an address of critical race theory? Excellent question. Yeah, so that lecture is, it's really about color separation, more generally about all the different kinds of layering that has to happen in printmaking, but it is fundamentally about color separation. So of course, you know, in print in printmaking, color has a totally different kind of life than it than it has in painting for, or drawing or something like you. If I asked you to imagine someone sitting down and making a work on paper in color, you would probably imagine like a pile of colored pencils or some watercolors, and you imagine someone spontaneously grabbing this color and that and working in and out of different areas of the image in a sort of fluid, again, spontaneous way. But color in printing is really profoundly non-spontaneous. And in particular, it, it generally has to be broken down and reassembled through separation and layering and sequencing and registration. So say you have a photograph and you want to print it, a color photograph and you want to print it, you have to separate it normally into its CMYK color separations. You have to break it apart into these four layers and then, you know, pile them back up again on top of each other on the paper. And this means that most color prints are in essence piles of broken color. They're kind of stratified. I even think of them as being kind of geological affairs that you know, bear very little relation to the spontaneity that we think about when we think about other kinds of color. So color in printmaking is sort of a, has, it's kind of a Humpty Dumpty thing. You break, you have to break it apart and you can never quite put it all back together. Every print, you have to think of it as a three-dimensional structure of color where the different layers are interacting with each other, you know, optically in certain ways, but they're not really fused. And there's all kinds of ways in which that reassembly can fail. So like misregistration, for example, Warhol specialty is the constant threat of color printing always there in any kind of print. There's always something misaligned. There's always something that doesn't just fuse back together in the process of color printing. I talk about Julie Meritu in this lecture in the way her paintings, which are so much about this difficult balance between, between order and chaos, between systems that seem to be building themselves and falling, to, falling apart at the same time, and talk about those in relationship to her own training in printmaking, her own understanding of print as being about trying to put things back together, which is in, in fact the way she has described it. And now she is, of course, actually printing into her paintings. So if you have a chance to go see her show at the Whitney, which I have not had a chance to do yet, I think you'll see a lot of color separation idea ideas going through there. Even in the all black and white works, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then someone that, in the end of that lecture, is about Mark Bradford's work, which, again, described as painting, but I see as being much more closely tied to questions of print. I talk about his work, Pickett's Charge, as it was installed at the Hirshhorn in 2017, which basically takes as its example, you know, this cyclorama of uh, a civil war battle that in the 19th century was meant to evoke unity, was meant to evoke a kind of healing of the nation, a meaningful reconstruction at the time. That was the idea that this, if you go and look at this panorama in paint, 
you will be able to experience the healing of the nation. He takes that painting and turns it into a set of layers of colored paper and color reproduction and basically pulls it apart and shows us all of these layers that don't quite cohere. Physically pulls it apart, I think is what yeah. yeah. Lit- yes, literally physically rips it up and shows that it is made up of a set of broken layers that have never really fused together. And I think that's one of the ways in which we can imagine artists thinking through color separation in ways that, you know, are somewhat oblique to the actual process of printmaking, but very closely tied to the ideas and problems that are that arise in that process. You know, one of the interesting things to me about your construction here is that you are suggesting a way by which artists, and I think viewers too, might read into printmaking a rejection of binaries. I'm not sure if that's your intent or not, but when we're talking especially about color prints and four color prints, you know, there's inherently a rejection of a binary or binaries built into that address. Yes. It's interesting. I mean, I think actually print, more generally print is actually built on binaries, right? Because negation and yeah. If you want the printing press to recognize the matrix that you feed to it, you have to program that matrix. You have to code it in a binary way. You have to separate it into printing areas and non-printing areas, right? And then there are various ways of doing that. You can have the printing areas be higher than the non-printing areas or vice versa. That's a sort of topographical way of breaking up the matrix into two different modes. You can do it like a lithographer where you're chemically separating the two kinds of areas or stencils where, you know, some things get through and some things don't because it is built on binaries. I actually think it's a perfect medium for thinking about dismantling those binaries actually. So the color separation question and the layering is very complex and that moves beyond those, those initial binaries. But like someone like Glenn Ligon, who was all over these lectures, you know, Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg are sort of my main muses from the 60s. But Glenn Ligon, in my view, is probably the artist today who's working most intelligently with these print ideas, even though he doesn't think of himself as a printmaker. But, you know, the way he complicates the binary operation of the stencil in his text works where with every repetition of the words across the canvas, the clarity of the separation between black and white becomes more and more difficult to perceive. You know, that's a kind of statement about a breakdown of a binary, which shows us the binary, makes us recognize it, and then breaks it down. So in many ways, contemporary artists can take these very old printmaking ideas and use them to break down some of very other old ideas. Your fourth lecture is built around the word strain. The first lecture was pressure. The fourth one is strain. So what is the difference between pressure and strain? And why does it matter both in terms of physicality, but also metaphorically? Well, this is a lecture that I had a lot of different ideas for the title here. I I came up with strain because this actually develops out of 
my rather insanely extensive research around screen printing. This is largely a lecture about screen printing and other stencil methods where the print is made by pushing ink through this mesh, through a meshy matrix or through openings. And I wanted to bring our attention to the physicality of these kinds of processes, these screen-based, grid-based processes, which do open out in the future onto filtering and digital methods in interesting ways. But, you know, when Warhol is picking up screen printing, it's a process that's not dissimilar to like straining soup through, <laughs> through a mesh. I'm trying to get at the, the physicality of, of this method of printmaking, which is so often seen as being about television, say, or film, or, you know, there's the term screen is always brought up in relationship to this. But I'm trying to get at how can we think about the, the, the act and the work of the mesh and other kinds of textile and fabric ways of working in the printmaking process and how we can make those become visible. Of course, Warhol makes the strain of screen printing visible by letting the screen get clogged, for example, and failing to activate the proper hygiene procedures in between paintings that he does. So that as he screens the same image over and over and over again, you begin to see it break down as an efficient kind of straining system. I also found in my research on screen printing that it it literally comes from the history of sifting flour. The same screen prints, screen printing was called silk screening at first because it was made it was it relied on this silk mesh which was made in Switzerland originally in order to produce white bread basically. This was the mesh that was used to make white flour and white bread for hundreds of years in Europe. This exact same material that was so good for sifting and refining and sorting things throughout early modern history in Europe turns out to be exactly the same material that is used to sort of sift images into being. So I wanted to connect this process both with the much longer history of these non-art operations and also allude to some of the social implications of that kind of question. So the Ligon, Ligon work comes in here. I also talk in this lecture a lot about Ed Ruscha's fantastic set of prints where he's literally like processing food, printing with things like baked beans <laughs> um, and uh, various other kinds of foodstuffs, just sifting them through, this, through the strainer of the screen print quite literally. Interference. How does visual interference enter a print and what problems or possibilities does it create? And I guess I'm also asking by that, what, what is interference in the context in which you're using it? Yeah, this is a lecture that on the one hand might seem to be about a very specific little technical problem in modern printmaking, which is namely the moiré effect. And it turns out that the moiré effect essentially are these irrational patterns that erupt when you layer two different regularly patterned structures. It can happen in all kinds of places, but in print, 
in particular in the later 20th century, it begins taking over the consciousness of printmakers and commercial printers after the middle part of the century when you begin to have more and more screen printing done. Whenever you make a screen print, you are putting an image through this regular mesh structure. So there's a there's a regular mesh structure to that print. And then in the halftone, which is really sitting behind the interference effects in printmaking, halftone, which is the structure through which the vast majority of photographic images get into print, is an array of dots that are all in a kind of perfectly regular grid-like structure. And, you know, we've all seen it. You've all seen what happens when, back in the day, when you used to scan an image at the wrong resolution, you would get these, these interference effects. They're all over the printing world. And if you talk to printers, they will tell you how much time and effort they have to spend to keep these interference patterns from erupting into the, into the work. Because print is now largely carried on grids <laughs> and regular pattern structures. And as soon as you put two of those structures together, you get moiré, especially with color printmaking, where you have to layer up, say, you know, four or five different halftones. It's actually impossible to keep moiré out of there. So many artists, however, and these, this is what this lecture is about, have allowed those moiré patterns to become part of the work. This was very common in the era of pop art, Rauschenberg, Lichtenstein, Rosenquist, Richter, of course, Polka in Germany, as pop artists are looking at the technologies of print, the technologies that are carrying images throughout the world, they want to explore this problem of interference and make it sort of the central topic of the work. And what's interesting about it is that it's a, it's, it's what I call an emergent surface. It is a an irrational pattern that bursts up out of the of a collection of rational patterns. It doesn't exist in any single layer of the print, but it sort of explodes out of their combination. It's a kind of surface that, for me, suggests something that's totally different and alien from our previous understandings of what the picture plane is and how space gets represented on a surface. It's also the place where print intersects in very interesting ways with the sound arts, which are also built on notions of waves and frequencies and beats, which are the same terms that are used to describe interference. But the moiré effect and these interference patterns, what's key is that they're not illusions, right? They are you know, actually produced by the physical contact of layers of a print like this. And they speak to me about a kind of transformation that's possible in printmaking and what we would call a mode of assembly or assemblage in fancy recent material theory, where you see the kind of unpre ultimate unpredictability of these processes. So that even in the print world where it's all supposed to be about replicability and predictability, printers can't really control their work anymore. The final in your six-pack is alienation. Within this lecture, you will be introducing, or at least you'll address, the question of time in printmaking, perhaps time made invisible to the viewer. You do this by addressing the matrices used in, in printing, so like the woodblock itself. 
what do we gain or learn by thinking about the question of time as it relates to the part of printmaking the viewer sees the least? Well, I think that there are two ideas floating through this term alienation for me. One is the one that we might understand or be more familiar with around, you know, Marxist theory about lost labor or the sense that the worker is no longer aligned with their own labor or no, no longer able to capture it or be present with it. And this is something that I think is performed or enacted in printmaking in some very interesting ways that sort of don't always align with Marxist theory, but which I think can be put into some pretty interesting conversations with them and have been over the years. So one part of the lecture that that I'll be addressing is what happens in the 19th century when people like Ruskin start seeing what's happening in these big illustrated periodical image factories. 19th century illustrated periodicals were built on the process of wood engraving, which is a relief printmaking process. And there were just factories filled with these wood engravers who would be taking a little chunk, a little piece of an image that would later be reassembled into, say, a full page illustration and very carefully and in very minuscule, tiny little gestures, you know, cutting away these wood blocks. And Ruskin really took this as a perfect example of the loss of the workers' kind of ownership of their own labor in the 19th century. So, and he would he explicitly talked about this in terms of all the time lost in order to create just a single standing line, for example. But part of the process of reversal and the creation of matrices is you know, they're they're in, in incredibly labor intensive, particularly prior to the 20th century. All of this labor becomes invisible and. I'm interested in that, but I'm also interested in this other sense of alienation, which is more literally about what we think we mean when we say alien. And that is that print, regardless of its connection to these Marxist ideas, print forces the printmaker to inhabit a space sort of outside of their own body and a space outside of the present. It reverses you. It puts you into a different kind of temporal existence. And this is something that is part of our everyday lives, even if we don't fully recognize this. And actually, we do fully recognize it now when we don't know what day it is anymore. Um, here in the, in the pandemic, I think we all live, you know, we're all living in this space where we don't quite ever feel that we are present. We're not really present in our work. We, and, and we don't, we can't quite capture our experience in time. And, and I mostly am, in this lecture, I'm mostly talking about actually the work of Christiana Baumgartner, who is this incredible German contemporary artist. You may know her work. She takes video stills. So these are digital images that were captured in less than 1 24th of a second by a video camera. And then painstakingly creates enormous woodcuts of these images that will take her four months, say, to carve. So she's taking a 24th of a second, some a, a time unit that by which we, we so many of us live our lives, anyone who's ever seen a moving image, 
the electronic time scale and then putting it into this super slow dendrochronological woodcut. And her work is about just asking questions about where do we put ourselves between these, say, ecological and electronic time scales? How can we use print as a way of thinking through our the relationship between old and new media, between temporal experiences at the small scale and temporal experiences at the large scale? So in some ways, it's about print's capacity to take us out of any fantasy of sort of temporal possession, sense of presence, and help us think about, you know, how, how we're balanced between technologies and ways of thinking that are really quite alien from the way at least Western culture brought itself up. Before we wrap up, the, the melons are, for, for at least as long as I can remember, uh, a sextet. That sixness, if you will, is fundamental to what they are. Ergo, ergo you had to have six words, six titles, what, you know, however you built it, it had to be around six. Therefore, was there a seventh or an eighth or a ninth word slash ideas that interested you and that you considered? Yes. <laughs> this is a series that I think could have continued. There are many other keywords that could probably be pulled out of art history, but there, you know, there's content, there, there's a lot of content that I wasn't able to fit in here. So for example, maybe the seventh lecture would have been something like, now I'm embarrassed because I didn't get far enough to think of what the word would have been, but it would have had something to do with circuitry. And it would have been about the relationship between analog print processes and the digital world. And I just couldn't cram it into the six. It'll have to be a sort of separate lecture, but it is something that I, I think about a lot. And that is, you know, what is the relationship between printmaking in its inky physical world and the digital world, which seems to be overtaking it, you know, but it turns out actually that these digital tools that are supposedly superseding print are literally built on print. I've been doing a lot of research on circuit boards, which are printed using old technologies like lithography and screen printing. Um, and if you look at the early history of circuits, the development of electronic circuits, the people who are developing these circuits are sitting in the British Library print room looking at etchings and looking at traditional print processes and thinking about basically how do I binarize this surface? How do I turn it into a conducting and non-conducting surface? Conduction, that would have been it. Let's call it that. Lecture seven. Chapter seven in your eventual book. Yeah. And I do, I do really hope to publish this soon. The most selfish reason for doing these lectures is that I want them to be a book that I can hand my students to introduce them to print. It's a book that I think doesn't really exist in the way I would like it to exist. So I'm highly motivated to, to book this thing. So hopefully, hopefully they will be quickly turned around. Jennifer Roberts, thanks very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Compare and contrast. This foundational method of analysis, first championed in the late 19th century by Swiss art historian Heinrich Wolflin, is at the heart of an exhibition of well-known and beloved works at Sheldon Museum of Art. Through July 3, 2021, 
the exhibition Sheldon Treasures presents works in pairs, inviting fresh and unexpected conversations between the works and among viewers. Richard Diebenkorn, Edward Hopper, Helen Lundberg, Ed Ruscha, Kay Sage, and Wayne Tebow are among the artists included. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. At long last, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, A Version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. Open April 17th through August 1st, 2021. The fifth edition of the Hammer's Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view April 17th through August 1st, 2021, at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and make reservations at hammer.ucla.edu and huntington.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Phil Sanders, who joins me to discuss his new book, Prince and Their Makers, which was recently published by Princeton University Press. Prince and Their Makers places contemporary prints and a range of printmaking practices in the context of traditions and techniques developed over more than a thousand years. Sanders was formerly the chief operating officer of the Elizabeth Foundation for the Arts in New York and director and master printer of its program, Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop. Sanders was previously the master printer and studio director for Universal Limited Art Editions. Phil Sanders, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it being on. In the introduction to the book, in fact, like in the second or third paragraph of the introduction, you point out that prints and printmaking provide us with a look at an artist's studio practice, with, with what they are thinking about, with what their process is. What do we gain from learning and knowing about such? For most artists, when you're involved in the making of your work, you're full of a lot of intention. And not everything that you want to get across can be gotten across in any single or specific work. And so sometimes there's a, an element that's driving an artist's work that they may not even necessarily be as cognizant of them and themselves, maybe something subconscious, that when you're working in print, because you don't have all the bells and whistles of, say, your painting practice, or you don't have, you don't have the same subjectivity of memory present because the proofs that you produce in printmaking, they're all present. They're all there. You can see exactly what's going on. And so for a lot of artists, they work in it because that specificity, that nature of necessity of being very specific in the way you work in print really shows to them what's important in their work, which then is in turn showing us what's important in their work. And I, and I look at it like this. If we see the role of the arts as being something that allows us to see the world through someone else's eyes, to gain experience through others' experience that we don't have to physically live through ourselves, so that we can change the way in which we operate in the world or change the way we see the world as a result of that. And the more we can learn about an artist's particular perspective on their work, it's kind of like focusing the lens. We can get a greater understanding of that work that they're producing. And so in printmaking, because you can have proofs, state proofs, you know, you make marks on a plate and you transfer that to paper and you have that to look at, when that artist makes changes to that plate, 
they have it to compare to what they had before. And that's what helps them evolve and create a more specific or honed, narrowed in voice. You know, and if you want to think of it in terms of writing, it's kind of that the Hemingway effect of saying you write something and reduce it down to its most bare essential elements. That's what you're having to do with prints. And so when we see graphic works of an artist, we're seeing the most distilled, specific aspects of the things that they have to say. It's their voice focused. And when we get that record of witnessing how they've made their work, we get a greater understanding of how they arrived at what was important. And it helps us pay attention then if we go, say it's someone who makes paintings, when we go back to their painting work, it, it changes the way we look at their paintings because we have a more focused lens to look through. So prints on, on just that kind of basic level really teach us a great deal about why an artist has done what they've done and why we should care about it. Decision-making and results made, made manifest. One of the things I really love about, about the book, Prints and Their Makers, is that you go through seven or eight printmaking techniques their histories, their presence, and you hold the past and the present next to each other, often visually, and talking about how the past and the present have informed each other and departed from each other in really cool ways. And so I thought it would be fun to go through a couple of those techniques and talk a little past and present and and outline, you know, why, for example, as we'll see in a moment, Durer is relevant in the context of William Kentridge. So speaking of that example, let's let's start with relief printing. What is relief printing and and when did it start? I think people are going to be surprised by how old it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, relief printing is the first printmaking technique. It's it's the ways in which people first figured out how to make their voice replicated in a way that was fast, it was efficient and it was accessible. So relief printing is what it says that the information that is printed that is inked and transferred to paper is what is in relief on a block or in the case of printmaking we refer to those as the matrix that it's printed from it was uh, about 1350 years ago is when it was invented it was invented in china and it was likely first done off of stone carved stone blocks or matrices as well as wood coming in fairly shortly thereafter. And the purpose of it was to replicate the voice. And I talk a lot about throughout the book of why that's important. And, and it's really part of the human story towards that reach for immortality. It's, it's allowing our voice to live, not just beyond our own years and our own time, but also across distance. Because once you've printed a text or printed an image in multiple, it can be easily disseminated. And as a, as a result, the likelihood of it surviving over time is much, much higher. So why we still have prints from the early, earliest days of printmaking is because they were done in multiple. So fires, floods, famines, political regime change, the likelihood of something that's been printed in mass surviving the test of time is pretty high, especially on a, major, on a substrate of paper that's as durable as paper is. You know, so when you think about the earliest printed documented, meaning we know the date of it, the book, the Diamond Sutra. What's so important about that is that it, in the text of it, I mean, the Diamond Sutra was done in 868. And on the text, it says it was for universal dissemination. They were talking about the concept of printed material being for the masses back in 868. And I think that's a really important thing to think about in today's terms. It's 
about knowledge being able to be disseminated, about it being accessible. But it's also on the other side of that, it's about who has the right to say these things, who has the money, the power, and the influence to create that mass multiple, and what is the value of that voice that we place on it because it can be replicated. And I think those are some of the complicated things about print and print history that we have to really think about when we go through the history of print coming up into today is who has access to printing, who can, who gets to replicate their voice, who decides that and how is it disseminated and for what purpose, you know? So when you think about something like the Gutenberg Bible, what was so important about the printing of that work wasn't that it was a early or likely the first complete printed book in the West. It was the fact that it was a book that was never supposed to be replicated without the authority of the Pope. And the Pope gave the authority to print it. And once that was printed, it opened the floodgates of it being printed again. And there's all these people who print, printed you know, illegal, non-sanctioned copies of the Bible afterwards. And what that does relative to power and control is why in 835 was the first time that we know of printing having been banned, and that was in China. It was because of control, because once people have the opportunity to print for their own and replicate their own voice, it changes the nature of the conversation that can be had. And so when we think about the early days of printmaking and relief printing, why it was so accessible and still is to this day, is that all you need is a piece of wood and something you can gouge at it with a small amount of ink or any other pigment that you can transfer to paper and you can do it with your hand. You know, you can put all the materials in a backpack and walk around with it and you can make a print and you can make more than one of them. And I think that's really the power of print, especially relief printing. And it's why I try to use the book to set it up in that way is that it's the most basic form of printing that allows us to replicate our own voice. And then in doing so add value to what it is that we have to say. And maybe Durer and Kentridge are a good example of, of different ways of addressing that question of who gets to say what. You know, what I've contrasted in the book is Durer's Triumph Arch in contrast to William Kentridge's project, The Triumphs and Laments. And Durer's Triumph Arch was commissioned by Maxim, Emperor Maximilian, and it was about glorifying his reign, his family, his dominance, and the dominance of his family over time. And the reason they did it as a print was because of all these different sheets of paper that were printed to be tiled up to create this about 11 foot tall print. It meant that you could take these folded sheets, send them all over the empire, and you could paste them in public buildings so that the exact same information would be everywhere across the empire quickly. So all the trade and laborers work to produce that particular printed image would be one time spent to make it versus having to paint that exactly in all of these different places. So it was cost-effective way of essentially creating the propaganda for his regime, Maximilian's regime. And so when you contrast that then with William Kentridge's work, The Triumphs and Laments, what you're looking at with that is he's investigating what happens to the side that loses a war. You know, and his direct inspiration was Montaigne's Triumphs of Caesar, you know, the, the paintings that glorify Caesar's win in the Gallic Wars. And so what he wanted to say was, well, what about all of the wreckage, all of the people, the vanquished, the migrants, uh, the refugees? You know, and, it, and part of it had to do with the fact of, you know, all of the migration out of North Africa 
into Europe at the time, which is still going on. And he's also looking at it, all the migrations in South Africa as a South African artist. And so the, what he decided to do is create this work that was a, literally the opposite side of what Durer's work was doing, it was talking about the opposite group of people. And the beauty of having both of these as having been done as woodcuts, as prints, is that we can actually exhibit these things together in multiple places. They can actually still exist in conversation with one another, not just today, but in the future, as maybe this topic is revisited again. And it's what's interesting about it is that, you know, Jillian Ross, the master printer who was working in collaboration with William Kentridge on that project, he was wanting to do something bigger. And Jill was really pushing him to do something on a larger scale because of the scale of the public artwork, the Triumphs and Laments public piece that they did along the Tiber River in Rome, which is about a quarter of a mile long. And as a result, they needed a way to make it without having a press that was that big. I mean, nobody has presses that are six feet wide, seven feet wide to accommodate these massive prints that they were making. And so William really reverted back to a lot of his skills through puppetry and theater and how you join pieces together. Because one of the things that he likes to talk about with, you know, using multiple sheets of paper to form a figure is that you can adjust the way in which we feel about them or see them based on like the position of a shoulder or an elbow. And so one of the things that we are seeing in his process there is that not only was the multiple sheets of paper something that really worked out well to make it physically, right? Because it's such a big work and it mirrored the way Durer's piece was made. It also then allowed him to adjust the figures within those works and, and to adjust the mood and the feeling and to either make us empathize with that character more or to make us see them as a, a more active or passive participant within that picture. And so printmaking allowed him to do a lot of different things, even though they were working on a process that was exactly the same as what Durer had done 500 years earlier, which was breaking your image up onto multiple blocks, onto multiple sheets of paper to be then tiled back together and they can be taken apart and tiled back together at will. And that allows them to be more easily transported or disseminated. So, I mean, right now, Jillian Ross is on a residency at the Griffin arts project in Vancouver. And one of the things she's doing is putting together the last two prints in that series, the, the refugees one and refugees two. And she's showing people how she does it you know, all these layered pieces and how, how they often be trimmed and how they get pinned and how things are over and under and the whole process. So she's really trying to help people understand like what went into making these things. Another printmaking technique, one that comes along a whole lot later is lithography. And as you detail in the book, it's kind of, well, not kind of, it is particularly important within the American story and the dissemination of artworks and the ideas within artworks in, in the United States. There's a great two-page spread in the book of you working with Will Cotton. What is the story that we're seeing play out over, you know, I don't know, about 20 photographs or something across those two pages? We'll have the spread on manpodcast.com, by the way. What we're seeing is what it took to make the work and a little bit of the process of not just technically, but creatively for Will. And so... Will's working in the most traditional way of lithography, the way it was first invented, on a lithographic stone. So it's a piece of limestone, lithographic-grade limestone, that you draw on with greasy materials. And the process of litho is based off of 
the fact that grease and water resist one another. So if you draw with a greasy material and then dampen the stone, you can get ink to stick wherever that greasy material was so long as the stone stays wet because the water will repel and create that spot for the greasy ink to stick. So with Will's print, what you're seeing there is how he had to think in order to create this work. So he started with a drawing on the stone and we proofed that in black for him so he could see what he had. And we used that as a key to then build a full color image. Even though that stone that we, we printed, that that was actually the fourth layer or the seventh color because we were printing multiple colors at a time. So it's kind of sandwiched in the middle of the development of that work. And one of the things you see there kind of in the middle on that right-hand page are three of the layers that he had to draw in order to start building that quality of her flesh tone and her skin and the feel of the background. So one of the things as a collaborating printer that I work with my artists on is trying to gauge how they want an image to feel and what they'd like it to do, both visually as well as conceptually. And so that helps me guide them in how they need to draw. And so what you're seeing are the bits and pieces of conversation, processing stones, bits of, of Will's drawings, all the things that go into making a print. Because this is a photograph he took of Elle Fanning um, a number of years ago. It was out of a New York Magazine spread that he had, he had done where he had done a series of photographs of her for New York Magazine. And he had never done a painting based on those photographs or a print. And so he was really excited to be able to kind of go back to the source photograph material and see where he could take it. Because there's a point where, you know, he works really heavily from the photograph. And then there's a point where it, it starts to diverge and go and take a life of its own. And that's always that really fun part for Will because, you know, he's a master draftsman. And, you know, once he's got it to a certain place, now it becomes about the life that he can impart to the work itself. And that photograph becomes subordinate. We might use it for some color or something like that for conversation, but we really start working on how he wants her to feel. And, and the nice part about the lithographic process is that there's malleability in it, but it's also the most direct capture of the artist's hand out of all of the printmaking processes. The mark you make is the mark we print. And it's not a translated mark, like say an etching where you scratch into a plate and you have to eat it with an acid to then put ink into that mark. It's a direct capture of the artist's hand. And, and that is actually the most difficult for an artist. So one of the things that Will does a really great job with is making it look easy. And it's a extraordinarily complicated thing. I believe that one was 14 colors. And so what we're trying to do with, you know, the get the feeling is that we, we want her to feel alive. We don't want her to feel cold. And so, you know, some of the subsequent layers, like if you look on the next page in the book, you'll see three stages of prints there. There's the black stone drawing on the left. There's where we got to when we printed the stone on the base colors and then where the print came to as a final. And you can really see how any one of those points was a great image, but where we took it to in the end was the image that Will was really striving for. And that's kind of describes the process of collaborative printmaking really well in the sense that Will was pushing for something. I'm trying to help him get there. I'm pushing Will back and he's pushing back again. It's this kind of push-pull situation in order to achieve something that's better than either one of us could have done on our own. And that's something that I talk a lot about in the book is that as collaborating printers, we've done our job when it's a one plus one situation equals three. The end result is greater than the sum of its parts. 
We'll have an image on manpodcast.com of the final print as well. You, uh, no surprise, were correct. It's 14 colors printed from a single stone and nine plates. So there are two other places in the book I want to raise in which you lay out how processes through which an image was created were played with by, by artists in later years and to different effects. One is in Intaglio, where you play an Auguste Rodin view of Victor Hugo against a print Julie Maritou made in 2008. What do those two very different images have in common, and where does what Julie did diverge from what Rodin did? For me, as someone who's spent a lot of time trying to help not just artists, but also art collectors, art enthusiasts, really understand more about the creative process, what drives an artist, and why printmaking is particularly well-suited at understanding that better. These two images are one of the easiest examples for me to explain that, being that it's a really specific process called dry point. It's the direct marring of a metal plate that you push ink into the burrs and down into the recesses. And it has a kind of a soft, fuzzy quality to it. And so when it goes to the press, you get these beautiful, rich impressions. But as a result of the pressure of printing, those delicate burrs are crushed. And some artists have used that very specific crushing of the burrs to create a mark that holds ink in a really specific way. It creates a beautiful gray tone that you could never draw. And so the portrait of Victor Hugo by Rodin, you really utilize that to create that feeling of the beard as well as some of the softness in the cheeks. Those are marks that he couldn't actually physically draw. He had to draw them and crush them with the press. So it was a drawing technique that was developed as a result of the process, right? And that's why we get to see this beautiful image. And if you ever get a chance to see that particular print in person, it's you, you can feel like you can put a comb in the beard. And so, you know, f- fast forward to Julie working on this particular dry point. She was using the press in the same way, but she was using it to create layering and to create a ground that she could never actually physically draw, but that she could still create through the process. And I like to use these two next to one another, because if you look at them closely, you can look at that kind of mass of marks towards the center of Julie's piece. And it really feels a lot like that beard, right? There's, there's a tactility that has that has a similarity to it. And one of the things that comes through when you look at them side by side is just how much the works of art are driven by the artist, not the process. Even though they're using the same process in the same way to create a mark that they couldn't create any other way, they're using it for their own ends. And, and this to me really illustrates a lot about printmaking in general and how we have what we commonly refer to as an additive toolbox. So we have all these processes that industry develops, you know, for printing faster, more images, better, and cheaper. And so we get to cast off new technologies that come towards the arts, but we don't throw out the old processes we have. I and mean, we're still doing woodcuts in the same way that we did woodcuts, you know, 1300 years ago, but we can also use a laser cutter to cut a block for us or a CNC machine to cut a block for us, or we can 3D print a block for ourselves. But we don't get rid of the older technology just because we have something new. We have this additive toolbox. And so when someone like Julie comes along and she's looking for a way to get a type of mark or a type of tone and she can't physically draw it, then we can go back into that toolbox to help her find something 
that she can use in order to get that feeling. Because for her, what it came down to is about creating that sense of physicality and that sense of depth. You know, for an artist who is really well known for her layering of physical material, you know, this allowed her to get that physical layering on a single matrix, right? So it allowed her to work the way she wants to work and the way her mind works and the way her creative vision of the world, you know, produces work through her hands. But it allowed a technique to come in to fill a gap for her that she may have, say, in a painting, put a sheet of mylar in. You know, to create a to create a pushback or a tone, and so it's yeah. To me, it's really a, a great illustration how the prints that result, the processes inform the artists, but it's the artists that create the art, not the process. We'll have images of both of those on manpodcast.com as well, of course. The last grouping I'd like to start you talking about is you know like one of the most unlikely groupings in the book, probably. I mean, it was so unlikely that I'm glad you raised it off tape as one to bring up. <laughs> and it's when you're talking about screen printing. And screen printing is interesting for lots of reasons, including that it's really, really, really popular right now. Lots of artists, whether they're working in screen printing or whether they're making paintings, are referring to screen printing and its opportunities for multiple and the dispersal of information. And you have a spread in which you bring together an Andy Warhol, a Sister Corita Kent, and a T-shirt, uh, Raymond Pettibone. Why did you bring those three together? And and it's near the end of the book. It's it's probably a pretty good kind of summary of why all this matters and works. Yeah, for me, I mean, one of the more important aspects about printmaking as a practitioner is that we're not separated from our history or why and how artists use things. And so, so often when you're getting like the history of a process, you're getting it from a really kind of narrow perspective of someone who has not necessarily been involved in the making of those things. And so one of the things that was kind of became very apparent when I was researching for the book is that there is all of these varying threads within each of these processes that no one ever combines. And it's, it's kind of why I tried to parallel printmaking, its development, historical development as an industrial art, as well as a creative art, because it has always been both at the same time. And the way I describe that to people is, you know, if you think about the first printed words, you still had to create a typeface, right? So there's an aesthetic decision that's being made from the inception. So everything's, there's a practical reason you're doing it. That's that kind of commercial side of it. And then there's also the artistic side on how that's going to look because you have an opportunity to make that choice, especially since it's going to be replicated. And when you get into the world of screen print, so much gets focused on, say, Andy Warhol and his use of it as taking screen printing into painting, right? So taking it away from its, quote unquote, graphic or industrial side of what it does. You take a look at someone like Sister Corita Kent, who is using it not only for her own artwork as an artist herself, but as a means of empowering people's voices and how you could use art for social change or social good. And then you kind of take another jump forward and you get into the 80s and, and punk rock and post-punk and how screen print is being used for signs and T-shirts, for protests, for tagging the street and tagging buildings and how this immediate medium is being used in all these different ways. Though in industry, you know, it's it's making billboards, it's making product packaging, and it is making T-shirts. But it's, again, it comes back to who gets to choose what you get to say and how that is said. So when you take someone like Raymond Pettibone, 
who, you know, as a founding member of Black Flag and the one who did a lot of the artwork for the, you know, the LA punk scene, what printmaking afforded someone like him at that time period was a way in which to get his artwork out for something that was complete counterculture, right? You know, it's, it's hard to think about it as counterculture today, but at the time, you know, it was, it was really, it was really different what they were having to say, you know, it was like the anti-nuke movement. And, you know, so, so screen print has played all these different roles. And so often when you get the history of screen print, you're getting one of these things, not all of them together. And, you know, when I get an artist in the studio and we're working on screen print, they know all of these things. That's their history of screen print is how it's affected them and their lives and the things that they've seen. And so, so, so much of the book was trying to reflect what the experience of the people who make prints is. That's, you know, the title of the book, Prints and Their Makers, is for me as when I started writing it, it, it just became, well, this has to be the title because it's a book about prints and the people who make them, right? And so in our experience, you know, so it seems like a complete no-brainer. But so for me, like that particular spread in the book is one that I love because it's it's a history of screen print. It's kind of a history of contemporary art in a nutshell. And it's the thing that nobody ever talks about at the same time because people like to relegate artists and different movements to their own categories versus allowing them to live together like they live in all of us. For me, it was really important that we allow things to live the way they actually live for us. So one of the great storylines is that Sister Carita Kent was doing screen print and the screen prints she was doing before Andy Warhol started doing his screen prints were really different. And she saw an exhibition, I believe it was in 1962, of Warhol's soup can screen prints. And it completely fundamentally changed the way she approached screen print, right? So she got to see Andy's work, but she wasn't going to do anything like what he was doing. She was doing her own thing with it. And what she was doing was, was showing people how they could use their art and their voice for a different type of change. You know, and Andy was doing the same thing. You could argue they were both trying to use art to make us think about ourselves and think about why we do what we do and what we believe to be important and why we believe these things are important. They were just doing it from wildly different perspectives using the same medium. But people don't really talk about them together in the same conversation. You know, and that's that's why, you know, putting the T-shirt on there was really important for me because that's so much about how we experience printmaking is in is think through things like our money and our books and our t-shirts and billboards and and that but it has the power to be that ubiquitous as an object but it has the power to change things greatly as well by based on what you put on it or how you use it so yeah so for me this particular spread in the book really encapsulates that whole idea of printmaking as an industrial art as well as a creative art as all the roles it serves within society and really highlighting why the value of one's voice is so important and why it's so important to be able to replicate it. Phil Sanders, thanks. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.